0: I'm going to cross the Atlantic tomorrow, and I'm going to fly over to Holland, England, Wales, and Ireland, and I'm going to play some gigs, and it'd be great to see you guys at some of those shows. But you can go to otisgibbs.com and find out where all those gigs are, and I look forward to seeing you. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Bill Demain. Bill is a songwriter, music journalist, and the owner of the Walkin' Nashville Tour Company. And you can find out everything you need to know about Bill at walkinnashville.com. For the last 25 years, Bill's traveled all over the world in his band Swan Dive, and they've toured extensively in Asia. And he's also written articles for Mojo, Entertainment Weekly, and Classic Rock Magazine. But in 2002, he wrote an article about Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney and Wings coming to Nashville and spending six weeks. And I read it a long time ago, and it stuck with me. It was a really fun article, a nice little slice of music history. And I thought it would be pretty fun if uh, he would come on here and tell that story. And he was nice enough to invite me into his home here in Nashville. And we sat down at his kitchen table and he told us his story. Here's Bill Demain.
1: So um, in early June 1974, he and Linda and their kids and all the guys in Wings came to Nashville with the intention of rehearsing for a world tour that they were going to start later that summer. And I think when they came here, that was really all they had in mind, is that they would stay for a week or two, rehearse for the tour, and then maybe go back to New York or back to London. But from what I understand, within three or four days, McCartney was totally smitten with Nashville, and he just kind of changed his plans you know, pretty impulsively, for, especially when you have traveling with your wife and your kids and, and a band, and just said, what if we stay? So they ended up staying for, for six weeks. So Buddy Killen uh, was the head of Tree Music Publishing. The connection there was that Linda's father, Lee Eastman, knew Buddy. And I guess, you know, when when the McCartneys decided they were coming to Nashville, even if it was only going to be for two weeks, Lee Eastman called Buddy and said, hey, would you be the man on the ground who would maybe show them around? And and even more than that, try to keep their visit uh, under wraps. So it wouldn't get out to the press necessarily, and I think you know Buddy took that job really seriously. When when I interviewed him, he was I remember he said, you know, um, I I really wanted to try to keep the fact that McCartney was going to be in Nashville from the press at least initially, and he did it. You know, I I think when the McCartneys arrived at Nashville Airport, there were only forty people there, like only a couple of fans. It's not like today where it would be on Twitter and ever like the whole city would be there. Um, in 1974, you could still keep secrets, you know. Um, and then Buddy was the was the guy who actually kind of chauffeured the McCartneys around, took him to the Opry, took him to Chet's house, took him to meet Jerry Reed, you know. And uh, I think he loved the job, you know. Maybe
0: so that people know who Buddy Killen was. He was a really big player oh, in Nashville at the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, he started out as a bass player uh, in the 50s and was a songwriter and kind of fell into the business side more of it. But man, I mean he was uh he was one of those guys that w- that was sort of like the enlightened executive, you know. He was a businessman and a good one, but he was also a real it was a musician and a music lover, so he could approach his job with with two brains, you know. And I mean he signed so many great songwriters to Tree when they were just a little company, you know. People like Curly Putnam, Roger Miller, you know. And Dolly Parton, yeah, Jerry Throckmorton—I mean, Sonny Throckmorton, sorry. So yeah, I mean, he was—he was kind of a legendary figure. By the time I got to meet him in what was that, two thousand or whatever was—and he, you know, he also he—he he produced Joe Tex. I mean, he you know, hes a heavyweight. So apparently, um, you know, once the McCartneys decided to that they were going to stay for, for more than. a... A week or two, um Buddy Killen got on the phone and was looking around for a place that would be big enough for he and his wife and their kids and and the band, so that meant kind of looking a little bit on the outskirts of town at farms, and I remember Buddy told me you know he called a couple of people without without saying who he was looking for this you know these digs these digs for, but I think. You know, maybe just from the tone of his voice and the fact that, like, we need something for seven or eight weeks. Pretty quickly, people cottoned onto the idea. Like, oh, wait, this is somebody famous, and immediately would just jack up the price. (laughs) Yeah, and he said, he said, one person said, yeah, sure, I'll rent you my farm uh, for two hundred thousand dollars, and that'll that'll help me pay off the farm. You know, (laughs) yeah, Um, and eventually, you know, I guess he looked in house to one of his staff writers, which was Curly Putnam, who had this farm. Not quite sure the location of it. Um, I just know it was somewhere on the outskirts of town. I'm, I'm sure it would be easy to to probably Google it and somewhere find it. Somewhere in Lebanon. Lebanon, yeah. And also, the, the one other thing I remember Buddy said is that he, he offered Curly and his wife, he said, why don't you take a vacation? So he set up a Hawaiian vacation for them for like five or six weeks. So that would be, you know, they would go out of town and the McCartneys would move in. But yeah, I think... Uh, i mean yeah the big the big songs that come to mind with curly um are green green Grass of home D.I.V.O.R.C.E., and of course the one he co-wrote with Bobby Braddock. he stopped loving her today and i think I might be wrong about this, but I think curly also had uh for a short time an artist deal too. I've seen some of his his l p s um so i mean you know he was he was a heavy hitter songwriter even at at that point you know he hadn't written he stopped loving her today yet but um
0: do you have any idea if
1: mccartney was aware of green green grass at home or- oh, i'm sure he would have been because tom jones had a huge hit with that and i'm i'm sure yeah i'm sure M- M- mccartney you know it's interesting when you read interviews with him how how deep his knowledge is a popular song i mean because you know it goes back to fred astaire movies it goes into R&B, it goes into country. So I'm sure he was aware. But if that had anything to do with, with uh, you know, having respect for the property, um, I'm not sure because <laughs> apparently the McCartney kids were really wild, like the three little girls. And they ended up just kind of trashing the place. And Cur- Curly said when he got back from, from Hawaii, it was like a couple weeks cleanup project. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? The th- the things that you never think about, like huge megastars, like that, you know, they're just like everybody else and have kids that are wild. And... Well, didn't they have an accident? Oh yeah, that was it. That was at Buddy Killen's house. Apparently, like one of the first nights that he took them out, um, they wanted to the McCartneys wanted to go out and get Kentucky Fried Chicken, which I don't know, probably Kentucky Fried Chicken wasn't in the UK yet at that point, so. They brought, you know, a couple buckets of chicken back to the killing house. And Buddy said that he had just recently redecorated and the house was immaculate. And They had, the, you know, like a white velour couch and a white carpet and the, everything was fresh painted. And within 10 minutes of opening up that chicken, the little McCartney girls were just going crazy, running around the room, jumping on the couch like a trampoline. And he just said he, he was watching like they're... Their greasy little fingers just like smear the walls. <laughs> so he said, "Hey, I got an idea. Why don't we go out and uh, you know drive around the city, and we can bring the chicken with us?" So you know they said, "Okay." And I guess they went outside and they were getting in the car, and then one of the the Stella, who's now a famous designer, Stella McCartney, who was maybe ten or eleven at that point, had forgotten something in the house, and she ran back in. When she ran, she didn't see that there was a big pane of glass next to the door, and she ran right through it. Yeah, and it was basically like all this broken glass came down and, and sliced up her arm really bad. So Buddy said he was out there, and he heard all this screaming. He ran, and he saw all this blood, and Stella was lying on the ground. So they had to rush them to the hospital. You know, everything was was fine. Stella got all sewn up and stuff, but I remember Buddy saying that it was it got around the hospital pretty quick that mccartney was there and he said all the nurses and doctors were stepping out in the hall kind of you know trying to get a peek and buddy said later he joked with paul he said you know we lost a lot of people at the hospital tonight because they were all trying to get a look at you, <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean beyond beyond his name being Curly Putman Jr. and the song being called Junior's Farm, I've always looked in the in the lyric of that song for any hints of references to either Curly as a person or Nashville. And it's it's one of those McCartney songs where the the lyric is, is very whimsical and n- doesn't necessarily make any kind of linear sense. And there you know there's references to Eskimos and Ollie Hardy and. I don't, I don't think beyond maybe the the name of like, oh, we're living on Junior's farm. I think that's about as far as it went for the inspiration, as far as I can tell from the lyric, you know.
0: Does McCartney um, claim that the title at least is attached to Curly I've Putman's never heard farm? him
1: verify it. Okay. But I mean, it kind of makes sense if the song the song was written and recorded here in Nashville, and he was living on a farm that belonged to Curly Putman Jr. But no, I've never heard him actually say... I took the name from Curly Patton Jr. Well, again, this is, you know, Buddy, or, uh, Buddy Killen's memory was that he, he said he decided, you know, again, it's, it's funny when you look back at all this stuff 40 years ago, like, I, you know, I guess people were just more laid back about the way they, they did things. And Buddy said he didn't really even think to call ahead to the Opry, and say like, hey, I'm bringing Paul and Linda McCartney out there. You might want to have extra security. He just brought them out there, you know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and it was it was weird that it just happened to coincide with, it was apparently the last night that Porter and Dolly were singing together. They had announced, you know, that was the 74 was when Dolly went solo and did I Will Always Love You. And this was their last performance together on the Opry. So it was kind of a big deal night. But I remember Buddy saying he got out there, and they got out of the the car, and they started walking towards the um, uh, the box office out at Opryland, where the, at the Grand Old Opry House. And he said, within a minute or two, he he was looking around and he noticed people's you know eyes fixed on McCartney, and and he could see lips moving. Is that Paul McCartney? Is that Paul? you know? And he said, you know, within five minutes, there were swarms of people around, and he said, oh my god, I've made a huge mistake. Like I got to get him out of here. But McCartney. At that point, was so good at handling crowds that he, you know, he didn't panic. He just kind of he walked swiftly and would sign autographs and shake hands. And apparently, he told Buddy Killen. He said, "You know, I learned in the Beatles the best way when I have people like coming around me like this is just to stay calm and just just be nice, sign a couple autographs if I can." He said, "If he said I learned if you run or if you bolt, that's when people tear you to shreds." <laughs> you know. So yeah, I mean, that was. A, a, mccartney's savvy about dealing with crowds like really came in handy there that probably could have been a a, maybe a bad scene you know
0: i think i saw pictures online of them with porter and dolly oh
1: yeah there's a there's such a great photograph and i'm guessing maybe les leverett who was the opry photographer took that Uh, a beautiful photograph of them backstage with porter and dolly it's almost like a like a Paul and Linda sandwich with Porter and Dolly on the other end and everybody smiling and looking fantastic. You know, Porter's hair, like immaculate and McCartney with that wings mullet. And man, that's, yeah, that's one of my favorite Nashville photographs. It's such a
0: great meeting of different worlds.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and you know, I've, I've gotten to interview Dolly a few times and I've never, I've never gotten to ask her about that because I always wondered, I don't know if she'd met any of the Beatles at that point, but you know surely i mean she's met everybody you know you see pictures of her with andy warhol and um but i was was always curious to know what if any was what was the the relationship or contact between her and mccartney you know i think it was a, a kind of a photo op although the, and the things that i'm even more curious about of course it would be hard to to find out now because Chet atkins and jerry reed are gone but apparently paul did visit both of those guys at their houses and kind of like do a little jamming and music talk. I mean, that would have been amazing. The, well, the only thing that I, that I do know is that Chet ended up playing guitar on one of the sessions that they did at the sound shop. So I'm, I'm guessing that McCartney probably at that point, when he visited Chet, you know, and, and certainly there was the George Harrison connection, and all the Beatles loved those Chet Atkins records, but especially um, George with, you know, playing the Gretsch and everything. So I do know that that Chet came to the sessions, and, and I think he played guitar on um, maybe Walking in the Park with Eloise, which was a song that McCartney's dad wrote. But I no, I don't really know. I haven't really heard any, any tales about uh, Paul's visit. You know, there's a couple nice pictures of him with Chet, like just kind of hanging out with guitars but
0: like Johnny Gimble and Floyd Kramer yeah
1: Johnny Gimble Floyd Kramer um
0: was Lloyd Green also on Lloyd
1: or? Green Tony Dorsey was the uh who had been the horn arranger for Joe Tex that was the first time he worked with McCartney and then pretty soon McCartney had him full time like by the time Venus and Mars came around and all that great stuff like Listen to What the Man Said that was all Tony Dorsey the horn arrangements you know I wish I had a better sense of the, the roster of people that recorded there. The, the only one I know for sure is that Joe Tex, and, and man, those records that Joe Tex made in, in Nashville in the 60s are just classic R&B records. There's a record he made, I think it's called Country Soul, where he did kind of R&B versions of classic country songs, you know. That's just a fantastic record, and he cut that there. Um, I'm sure if you dug deeper into the sound shop, discography it would be you know amazing like I, i'm pretty sure wilson pickett came there later aside from all the great country stuff that was i'm sure cut there and this guy ernie winfrey was the house engineer and he still lives here in town i mean he's um long retired but he's you see him on facebook posting about It it's funny i saw a post recently because mccartney's coming to town to the bridgestone arena and week after next i think And I guess Ernie hasn't had contact with him in a while, and he's sort of posting things like that he wishes he could go to the show and meet (laughs) meet him backstage. You know, it's probably cost prohibitive. The tickets are so expensive, you know, but... I hope that happens. I I do too. That would be really nice.
0: McCartney seems like a person, although he has a lot of people that he's crossed paths with in his life, he seems like a a genuinely warm person who would probably enjoy seeing him.
1: I think that's probably true. You know, I've, sadly, I've never gotten to meet Paul McCartney, but... It's sort of one of my dream interviews or, you know, meetings. But I I feel like I know several journalists who've interviewed him. And they all say that anytime you interview McCartney, like he, aside from being a great interview, because he's a great storyteller, he'll always make sure to give you a couple of like Paul moments, like where you walk, you know, like where it's the kind of thing like you'll tell your grandkids about that. And then Paul McCartney (laughs) said to me, you know, so yeah, I think he's very aware it's kind of a beautiful thing. I don't know if you've seen McCartney perform in the last couple of years, but there's an awareness there, I think, not only in the fans, that this is sort of like the you know the last of a generation, but McCartney's aware of it, too. And that's, it makes it kind of a real love fest, and, and it adds a, a different, almost a kind of spiritual vibe to those concerts that you don't usually feel at concerts in general. You know?
0: There's some great Super Eight footage online yeah, that yeah. a kid named Gil Gillum shot. Mm-hmm. I guess Paul and Linda met him on the street and let him come into the studio.
1: Um, nobody really talked about that, you know, Ernie or, or or Buddy, but yeah, I've I've definitely seen that footage on YouTube, and it's funny because it's it's appeared and disappeared a few times as things on YouTube tend to, you know, I guess with with rights violations and things like that. But yeah, I, I don't know much much about it except that. They were rehearsing Junior's Farm when this kid got to come in, and I mean, what a what a wonderful thing that that even exists—that footage, you know, just yeah. to kind of to kind of see that. Because I'm sure back then, people weren't really thinking about posterity and like, oh, we got to we got to document all this, you know.
0: Well, it's beautiful that they just would allow this kid off the street. Oh yeah, yeah. They obviously liked him because there's some footage of Linda standing in front of the camera, kind of dancing and joking with the kid who's holding the camera yes and it's just got a great feel to it It shows them in a really really good light
1: yeah and you know that reminds me too that um ernie winfrey remarked on the, the relationship between paul and linda uh, in the studio was really lovey-dovey i mean and you know they'd been obviously married six years at that point he would say you know whenever paul would come in uh, to the control room to listen back to anything like he would hop right in linda's lap and they were always kind of, you know, just touching each other and and that he called her mama, which I think is interesting, you know? I mean, it's sort of like Paul lost his mother when he was a kid, uh, 13 or 14, and, and Linda, you know, was a beautiful lady, but kind of had that earth mother thing about her, you know? So, you know, you wonder about stuff like that, you know? Apparently, at, uh, everybody in Wings um, was pretty easygoing and, and got along pretty well. And this was according to Ernie Winfrey, you know, as his interactions as an engineer with them in the studio. And he, he was a pretty, Ernie was a really, is a re- really nice guy. So for him to to say what he said about Jimmy McCullough must really speak to kind of what a jerk Jimmy was because he said, um, you know, he was a great guitar player, but he was just a world-class asshole. <laughs> And I think a lot of that, probably most of it, was due to the fact that that Jimmy was drinking a lot. And, you know, he was young enough where he probably still had an attitude. But Ernie said one day, you know, he kind of had a temper fit uh, in that studio and threw a beer bottle at the glass window. So, And apparently Jimmy was was picked up on a DUI one night and arrested. And Buddy Killen had to step in and pull some strings with the local authorities to get him off um but yeah i mean june that song junior's farm wouldn't be what it is without that's one of the greatest guitar solos in a wing song ever and that's that's jimmy mccullough man what a solo you know
0: didn't he pass away just a couple years after that
1: yeah he did It was one of those those drug casualty guys really you sad know? You know, I meant to tell you this. The article that I wrote, uh, I I did an updated version of it about six years ago for a magazine called Nashville Lifestyles, and I thought, as long as I'm going to do it again, I should try to update it. And I found another person who had contact with the McCartneys then, a woman named Dixie Gamble. And Dixie was sort of their girl Friday when she was here. And she actually spent more time with Linda, like taking her shopping in Hillsborough Village and apparently there used to be a boutique there called Old Mexico that maybe was like where Pangaea is now that was like a hippie dresses and, you know, kind of things. But I remember Dixie telling me too that the McCartneys really loved Loveless Cafe. And they went there, you know, pretty much every week that they were here, at least once or twice they, would, they were out there. And again, you think about like, it's not that long after the Beatles split Keep in mind too, when McCartney arrived here, Band on the Run was the number one song in the country. So I mean, he there was like no no way that he wasn't going to get recognized, like everywhere he went, you know. So you can only imagine what the scene was out there. But I know. I, I wonder if there's any waitresses, you know, who are still out there who would have been there for 40 years. Probably not, but maybe somebody has a memory of it, you know, the McCartney's out there, but
0: that's quite a ways from, from Lebanon all the way to the opposite no side of the city. to yeah. So they must have really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there's pictures of uh, – there's a, a great book called uh, Wingspan that was a, a, a photography book that accompanied it, um, a documentary that ran a couple of years ago on the history of wings. And there's some wonderful pictures that Linda took in Nashville of, you know, the band and the family, but some great shots of Paul, like, who – you know, pretty much immediately took to wearing a cowboy hat. <laughs> and pictures of him, like, driving a pickup truck and a motorcycle. And, you know, I mean, he was, the, you have to admire, like, how, how quickly he tried to blend in with the locals, you know. <laughs> uh, Paul and Linda were down in Printers Alley hanging out one night. And they wandered into a nightclub called Skull's Rainbow Room famous nightclub and there was a young country singer on stage named diane gaffney and apparently paul sat there and was listening for a couple songs he thought she was great and during her set she sang a song called a tangled mind which i I guess paul really thought was a great song the the legend goes according to skull shulman who who was there in the club sort of probably you know hovering around paul and bringing him drinks and stuff Skull claimed that Paul picked up a napkin and asked for a pen and wrote down a couple of lines and just tucked it in his pocket. And then sometime, you know, the next day or that week, when he was back at the farm, he wrote this song about this girl singer, Diane Gaffney, called Diane G. And there's a reference to this song, A Tangled Mind, in the song. Apparently, you know, he wrote it and putting the finishing touches on it. In the last minute, he changed the title to Sally G., he said it sang better, and it's probably true. You know, if you listen to the song and you try to insert the name Diane G where Sally G is, it doesn't quite fall very well. You know, to sing. But I've often wondered. You know, it's sort of like if Paul was singing that song around the house a lot, what Linda thought, <laughs> and if you know, maybe he, you know, both both of them were kind of thinking it would be better if you know we didn't have a direct reference to this person who was singing in Printer's Alley, just in case. You know. But a Skull Shulman also, you know, he, he, was, he was definitely a sort of uh, mythologizer kind of guy. He later said that, that Paul wrote the song in the club,
0: <laughs> you know,
1: just sort of like got it, you know, which, I, you know, I suppose anybody could, could believe about McCartney being the songwriting genius he was, that he would just sort of grab it out of the air. But, I, you know, I, I think it was definitely inspired by his visit to Printers Alley.
0: Either way, it would be good for business to claim that. Yes, it would be good for business. <laughs> Definitely.
1: <laughs> I, you know, it's the the funny thing is talking to, when I interviewed Buddy Killen and Ernie Winfrey and Dixie Gamble, m- one of my follow-up questions was like, you know, after McCartney left in in the years afterwards, did you have contact? And... You could tell all of them wish that there had been more contact. There, I think Buddy said that there were a couple Christmas cards in the years following, but, you know, McCartney being who he who he is and, and the sort of, you know, world-renowned traveler, musician, celebrity, I, I don't think he had much cause to ever come back here, you know. Um, the only thing I heard is when he played Bonnaroo two years ago that he did Junior's Farm and made some mention about, you know, that, oh, I once lived in Nashville and here's a song that I wrote, you know, while I was here. I don't think any of those folks, like, you know, ever got phone calls from him <laughs> or anything. It was just sort of... But, I mean, what a what a wonderful, you know, thing to remember that that was the summer of 74 when McCartney was here and, and that he was around town and, like, you know, I'm sure... I'm sure there's a lot of people who were here who probably saw him at the Loveless or saw him at the drive-in movies. Like, cause apparently they went to the drive-in movies a lot and probably just have that memory of like, oh, you know, I once saw Paul McCartney in Nashville and you know, he just left a little stardust on the town. I think, you know, aside from making some great music here too.
0: I appreciate you inviting me over
1: here. And <laughs> oh, my pleasure. It's great yeah.
0: to chat with you and thanks for sharing all of this.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: I'd like to thank everybody for listening in and I'd like to thank Bill for inviting me into his home here in Nashville. And I highly recommend anyone who's visiting Nashville to take his tour. And you can find out about that at walkinnashville.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.